You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. How are we doing? Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. You know, recently I have been, uh, this is going to sound weird. Let me give you some context. I've been uh, interested in reading food labels. Yeah, strange thing to say, I realize. I began an elimination diet in February to try to address some digestive problems that I was having, just kind of ongoing issues, and, and also in an effort to try to lower my blood pressure a little bit. It wasn't super high, but it was getting high because as it turns out, being a pastor is stressful. Who knew that? And so I started this elimination diet to begin addressing these things. And as a result of that, I began reading food labels over um, you know, every everything that I ate just to, just to make sure that what I was eating was okay. And, and I began to notice how deceptive food labels really are. This is a thing. So um, let me give you an example. Uh, it's probably been a month and a half ago or so now. I was uh, stopping. I had to get gas. I was taking my daughter to uh, a, a commitment that she had and, and she was hungry. She hadn't had any uh, snack that day, which is, you know, critical for a nine-year-old. And uh, so we went into this gas station to get her a snack and I uh, perused past the beef jerky section because I uh, love, I am a lover of beef jerky. And, and just to be clear, not the Slim Jims, okay? That stuff is disgusting. Uh, really... <laughs> Not even any of the big name brands, like Jack Links, all that, not really a big fan of. I like the beef jerky that's made probably like in the backwoods of Oklahoma out of some basement that like Racetrack and QT won't even sell, right? Doesn't even have a barcode on it. That's, that's my jam. But I came across a new one that I'd never seen before, and it caught my attention for two reasons. One, it was flavored with habanero, which I love, and two, in big letters at the top, it said zero grams total sugar per serving. And I was like, Amazing. This is great. That's one of the things that I've been cutting out of my diet, added sugar. And so, and, and, you know, by the way, if you want to go down a rabbit hole uh, on a Friday or Saturday night, go into your pantry and look at all of the things that have sugar in them. And I'm not talking about the sweet things, okay? I'm talking about like tomato sauce, chicken broth, soups, beans, like things that you would never expect. Like, why does this have sugar in it? Everything has sugar in it. Jerky usually has some added sugar, not only in the curing process, but also a lot of the flavors typically have sugar as well. And so this one was very appealing to me because it was something that I could eat. I was a little bit peckish myself and uh, needed uh, something to, to eat along the way. And I even turned it over on the back. It said, you know, no MSG, no gluten, no nitrates, zero grams sugar. And I'm like, what a win. What a win. So I, I pick it up. I buy it. I go back to the car, begin getting gas. I open it up and start eating it. Pretty, pretty excellent, honestly. A little different, a little different flavor, which I expected, being sugar-free. And um, I thought to myself as I was eating it, I wonder what is in this. You can see where this is going. I read the ingredient label. Beef. That's a good thing to have in beef jerky. Salt, vinegar, 2% or less of spices, garlic, onion, citric acid, orange, lime juice, paprika, chili powder, natural citrus flavors, celery, salt, cayenne, pepper, all great things. And then to my surprise, sugar. I had been deceived. 
I had been deceived. I had, I had believed that I was eating something that it was not. Apparently in America, if it has less than one gram of added sugar, they can legally put zero grams sugar. That's a whole nother topic for discussion. Uh, I got thinking about that though this week as I was prepping for this message, that as Christians, there are gonna be times in your life when various people, including some so-called Christian leaders or, or influencers, which is a term I hate, by the way, um, will attempt to deceive you by trying to convince you to act or live in such a way that is contrary to the scripture, that is contrary to what the word of God says. They will say, you can be a Christian and fill in the blank, right? You can be a Christian and agree with, support, advocate for things that are not only sinful, but sometimes directly hostile to Christ and his kingdom. And so as we come to our text today, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, we're going to find in verse 7 the singular commandment in this entire passage, in these 10 verses, there's one commandment, one word that is in the imperative voice, which means a commandment in Greek. John says in verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. That is the command. Do not be deceived. Do not let anyone lead you astray. And then in the surrounding verses in one through 10, he's gonna unpack a few of the ways people will attempt to deceive Christians in the church. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through these 10 verses and I want to talk about three different ways in which Christians are often deceived. And really, I think you can, you can think of these three categories as, as three different groups of people in the church. You can kind of personify this a little bit. In my experience as a pastor, uh, I can tell you that these categories absolutely represent camps of people in the church today, which means that, and I'm not just talking about sitting on a hill, I'm just talking about the church at large, which means that if they're there, you are likely to encounter them, you are likely to then possibly be persuaded by them, and you might even belong to one of them. So you need to be aware of it. So let's talk through it. Here's the first camp. I like to call this group of people the we should be friends with the world camp. The we should be friends with the world camp. Look at verses one and two. John says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. So if you are a guest here this morning or you just haven't been up to speed over the last few weeks, so much in the previous verses to this has been made concerning individuals who were at one time in the church but have now for one reason or another left the church. They were likely led astray by, John says in 1 John 2.15, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And then we learned two weeks ago that their departure from the faith actually revealed something even deeper, which is that they were never a part of the faith to begin with. They didn't really abide in Christ. They were not really branches attached to the vine, as Pastor James talked about last week. They were illegitimate. And now this morning, after delivering all these hard truths, John is going to come back to the faithful people of God in the church and give us this much-needed reminder that we have not departed from the faith, and therefore we are true children of God. And notice that he says that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He includes himself in this. John is a part of this. We are not illegitimate, in other words. We are the real deal because the love of the Father has covered us. And notice the word see as well. 
It's the Greek word horao. It's a word that actually John uses for the first time in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of this series, uh, we talked about the basics of the faith. And, and what we said was, remember, John was talking about how his testimony concerning Jesus was rooted in actual experience with the risen Lord. John had walked with him, he'd seen him, he had touched him, and he talks about that in verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, horao, seen with our eyes. It's, it's a word that conveys a, a tangible, seeable, visible evidence for something. In other words, what John is saying here is that the evidence that you are a true child of God should be obvious. When you you make the statement, I am a follower of Jesus, someone should be able to look at your life, look at your spirit, look at the way that you handle yourself and deal with one another and speak and, and conduct yourself and practice your faith, and they should think, yeah, there's evidence, there's tangible evidence that that is true. It's very obvious that that person is a Christ follower. One of the ways I think it becomes very obvious for whether or not you are a genuine follower of Jesus is when we begin to evaluate the friction that exists between you and the rest of the world. So the Bible, when you, when you examine the Bible from the start to finish, from a very bird's eye, like macro level, what you discover is that the Bible presents a very binary system with regard to the people of God and the rest of the world. You are either a part of the kingdom of God and at odds with the world, or you are a part of the world and you are at odds with the kingdom of God. There are no in-betweens. There's there's no third parties. So whenever folks criticize Christians for not being more friendly with the world, for not being more, you know, a part of the world, what that says to me as a pastor is, We have a real lack of understanding for how the church and the world exist together within a biblical perspective. So all throughout the Bible, the people of God are positioned against the world and vice versa. Beginning all the way back in the Old Testament, the nations are constantly what? Trying to dominate and subdue Israel. Israel is like this annoying gnat that is always like in your ear. And the nations are just giving it everything they can to to get rid of Israel, to dominate, to go to war. They're at odds with the the people around them and and they're constantly at war with the other nations and they're in captivity and they're trying to take the the land back at one point. And it is just this constant never-ending theme throughout the Old Testament. The people of God, Israel, and the rest of the world are at war with one another. And, and it seems like when you read this really more from like a human, like anthropological perspective, it seems like the reason there is such tension is just like an ethnic problem, right? Like, in other words, the Israelites have their own ethnicity, their own culture, their own language, their own religious practices. They worship Yahweh and the rest of the nations, they have different cultures and different languages and different religious affections. And these differences between the two create problems that leads to war. So it seems like an ethnic issue. But then you get to the New Testament And what you learn is that it's not an ethnic problem at all. It's actually a spiritual problem. Because apart from the fact that there is in Christ now no Jew or Gentile, only Christ followers, beyond that, what you learn is that the world is actually its own kingdom dominated by Satan himself. And Satan is set against the kingdom of God and has been from the beginning. So get this, scripture presents a very cut and dry proposition. You are either a Christian and a part of God's kingdom or you are not a Christian and a part of Satan's kingdom. There is no neutral ground. 
And these kingdoms are in constant opposition to one another. They are constantly at odds with one another. Now, if that is not convincing enough to you, don't take my word for it. Let's look at some other passages that really say this a bit more explicitly. Uh, in Colossians 1.13, Paul talks about what happens to a person when they become a believer in Jesus Christ? So when you believe the gospel, when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you become a Christian, the Bible unfolds in other places here and in other places, typically in Paul's letters is where we find this, that, that when that takes place, that belief takes place, there are several other transactions that are also going on behind the scenes that you were at the time probably not even aware of. Like you had this moment where you're like, oh, I love Jesus, I'm gonna believe the gospel, I'm saved, I'm forgiven, praise God. Let's go to lunch and celebrate because that's what we do, we go to lunch and eat, right? And, and there were all these other things happening behind the scenes that were going on kind of in an administrative level with regard to your citizenship spiritually. So in Colossians 1.13, Paul says, he has delivered us, talking about God the Father, from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You can see this two kingdom system sort of starting to unfold here. Paul says, you were in the domain of darkness. That's where you were. But now, now that you've come to Christ, now you belong to the kingdom of Christ. You did belong to Satan, but now you belong to Jesus. He says it even more clearly in Ephesians chapter two, one of the most powerful passages with regard to salvation. He says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul is saying here that before Jesus Christ entered your life, you were dead in your sin, you are a child of wrath. You walked according to the, the course of this world. In other words, the pattern of the world, you were sort of a part of it. You partook in those things. You followed the prince of the power of the air, who that, by the way, is just El Diablo. That's the devil, right? You're, this is your condition prior to Jesus, prior to believing the gospel. This is who you were. But then watch the switch that takes place, verses four through seven. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, not when you were getting it right, not when you were starting to turn over a new leaf, not when you were starting to try to turn your life around, when you were in the thick of it, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's the switch. You were, you were down here, now you are up into the kingdom of Christ so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. There's a transaction that takes place when you come to faith. Your citizenship, your citizenship changes you moved from one kingdom to another kingdom. You served one king, and now you serve another king. You were dead, now you were alive. You followed Satan, now you followed Jesus. And here's the deal. The king that you formerly served and followed hates you now. And his kingdom hates you as well, because you're a traitor. Because now, not only have you left his kingdom, but you have moved to another kingdom that is bent on his kingdom's destruction. So you are at War. In fact, when you get to the book of Revelation, the dual kingdom terminology just becomes extremely clear. You have two groups of people in Revelation, the kingdom of the lamb and the kingdom of the beast. 
That's the terminology John uses. They're in opposition. The kingdom of the beast wages war on the kingdom of the lamb, and in the end, after the lamb is just getting its tail kicked over and over and over again, the actual lamb comes back, and he destroys the beast and his kingdom and establishes the kingdom of the land on the earth. It's amazing. It's glorious. But understand this. Until then, there are two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of the beast, the kingdom of the lamb, the kingdom of Christ, and the world. There is no middle ground. There's no Canada, right? <laughs> and if you're from Canada, I'm, I'm very sorry. I, I, I don't mean that as pejoratively as it probably sounds. There's hostility here between these kingdoms. So get this, when John says in verse 1, the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him, he's referring to this conflict. He has this conflict in mind when he says that. So with all of that in mind, doesn't it seem silly to think that Christians should be more friendly with the world? That doesn't make any sense. You can't come away from scripture after reading this and think that. You can't read James 4.4 and possibly think that. James 4.4, such a pastoral thing for James to say. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? Do you not know that? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world has made himself an enemy of God. You cannot read that and think, we should be more friendly with the world. Yeah, we should try to get them to like us more and think that we're cooler than we actually are. We're not that cool. We don't need to be that cool, right? It's not about being cool. It's about walking in truth. Now, should we be kind to the world when we're speaking to them and engaging with them? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. We should, the people of God should exhibit all the fruit of the Spirit, which includes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are things that we ought to exhibit in the way that we appeal to and speak with people in any category and in any realm. So yes, we absolutely should be kind. We should be peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. So yes, we should love them and be gentle and we should, we should, we should be kind and gracious in our speech, but persistent in truth. Practically, here's what this means. Let me give you a real life illustration of, of how this kind of plays out. Next month, I, I said this at the welcome, we're gonna be hosting the Hope Gathering, May 19th and 20th. The Hope Gathering is a conference of uh, professionals in different fields who are all committed to um, proclaiming a biblical take on same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria, which includes calling it sin if we're just being completely honest, cut and dry. To do it with the heart of Christ, to do it with the fruit of the Spirit in mind, to do it centered on the Word of God, but, but to do it with truth, to call it what it is. And my experience tells me that the people and the we should be friends with the world camp are going to adamantly oppose a conference like this. Under the guise that it is unloving. No, it's not, it's not loving. You know, it, it's, it's so unloving to do that. And I would actually argue the exact opposite is true. I would actually argue the exact opposite is true. What could be more loving than the truth? What could be more loving than telling someone the truth? Now, we should do it again with the heart of Christ and, and in the fruit of the Spirit, with love. 
but we should tell the truth. We do it with kindness, we do it with gentleness, but we should tell the truth. And here's the deal, assuming we do it perfectly, which we won't, but assuming, let's just hypothetically for a moment say that we do this perfectly. We tell the truth in kindness and in love and in gentleness and the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit with the heart of Christ. Will it be accepted by the world? No, it will not. We'll be called hateful and we'll be called bigots. We might have protesters here. That's already something that has actually become a concern for this conference. Why? Because we weren't kind or gentle in our speech? No. Because the, the people in the world and the people of God are in opposition to one another and they always have been and they always will be. They will not love us or receive us because they did not love Jesus and they did not receive Jesus. Now, as an aside, just so I'm covering all the bases here, if you are speaking about these things in the public square and you're doing so with a hateful tone or harshness, you need to repent. I will call you to repentance on that. You're, you're being a horrible testimony or, or a horrible witness for the gospel of grace. The truth is the truth. You don't need to make it worse than it is, right? But telling the truth in kindness and in love is not hateful. It's actually one of the most loving things that you can do, but it won't be received that way because the kingdom of Christ is in opposition to the kingdom of the world. It always has been, it always will be until the lamb returns. What a fun sermon, am I right? Wow, we're having a great time. Let's talk about the second camp. We'll move there. I like to call this group the we don't need a process for change camp. And you gotta, gotta frown when you say that because that's what they're usually doing, right? Verse two, John says, beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There are not many other passages more exciting than this one. I, I think this is one of the most exciting passages in the New Testament. John is saying that we are presently, right now, children of God. We are in this present moment as imperfect as we are, and we are very imperfect right now. We are already sons and daughters of God in heaven. What an incredible thing to think about. But what he says though further is that though we are imperfect now, there's coming a day when we will no longer be imperfect. John says we shall be like him. Now Paul, the apostle, says something very similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 9 and 10, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. The partial will pass away. He goes on in verse 12, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. I gotta just say this real fast, that as a younger Christian, I used to always um, be very confused by this passage because in my experience living in the 21st century, um, mirrors are not all that dim. Like they're pretty clear, right? So when Paul says this, I'm like, bro, that's just your bad eyesight. <laughs> But, but in the ancient world, mirrors did not look like the mirrors that we had. They were reflective, but they were not very clear. And so his experience here is he's looking into something that kind of gives you a shape of what you're like, but it's not fully, really crystal clear in an HD. He's like, for now we see everything as in a mirror dimly, but then when the perfect comes, we'll see face to face. He says, now I know in part, but then, listen to this, this will really blow your mind if, if you really let it, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I mean, grab the weight of that verse. He just said that right now, we are as Christians limited in our knowledge. 
But there's coming a day when the perfect comes, when Jesus comes back, that we will know all things in the same manner that God has known us, which is fully. How much has God, how much does God know me? He knows me fully. He knows me intimately. In fact, God knows parts of me that I don't even know. God sees parts of me that I'm not even aware of. And, and Paul is saying here, that's the kind of knowledge that you're going to have when the perfect comes about everything. You're going to know all things even as you have been fully known. We're going to be like Jesus. We shall be like him, John says. There is a contingency of people in the church today, and I don't mean just that city on the hill, but just in the church, again, at large, who reject any kind of process or, or work that leads to holiness or sanctification, the process of being made more like Jesus. So any, any kind of step-by-step -step process that leads you to become more like Jesus, there are groups of people who are adamantly opposed to this kind of thing. There are a lot of processes out there, a lot of things that a lot of churches use. At City on a Hill, we are advocates for the 12-step process. We feel like there is, when they're done properly, when they're done within a biblical context, they're extremely helpful to move us into a place of greater surrender before the God that we love and serve. Step one, case in point, of the 12 steps. says, we admitted we were powerless. I cannot think of a better conclusion for a Christian to come to than that of total powerlessness. The admission that I'm not God, that I can't actually, despite what I might think on my worst days, I cannot do all the things that I need to do in order to live a well-ordered life. I'm, in, I'm incapable of it, I'm powerless over aspects of my life. You get to steps two and three. You recognize that there is actually someone who does have that kind of power, and his name is Jesus. The steps further move you to identify your sins and various transgressions that you have committed against yourself, against God, and other people, and to then confess them to God and to at least one other person, to make amends where possible. Like, I don't know, several stories in the Bible, Zacchaeus, I mean, name them. There are lots of places where amends are commanded of us. You are, are, are moved to begin practicing daily accountability for your behavior, for your actions, and to then help other people do the same. Now, of course, it makes sense when you evaluate the history of the 12 steps that they would be in line with the Christian perspective because they were written by Christians, some of them pastors, but there is a camp that rejects this. There is a camp of people who have great problems with this, some of whom were in this very church over a decade ago now and left as a result of our advocacy for the steps. We were accused of adding to the gospel, which is to be clear, not true, nor has it ever been true. We've never said that the 12 steps have anything to do with salvation or coming to faith. No work has anything to do with coming to faith. It's the work of Christ alone. Uh, but it didn't matter to this camp. We were accused of preaching a works-based righteousness because in the 12 steps, get this, the individual is responsible for doing the work that leads to this sanctifying process. Now, of course, these are the same people that said, instead, we should just read our Bibles more and pray more, which is incidentally the individual doing the work that leads to <laughs> sanctification. And to be clear, I love reading the Bible. All right, I love it. One of my favorite things in the world to do. I'm a PhD student in systematic theology. I either hate myself or I love the Bible, okay? 
I love studying scripture. I love to pray. I love being alone with the Lord and praying. I do these things every day. But here's the truth. None of that really matters to this discussion because none of that was really the problem. No matter how well we reasoned with people, no matter how well we addressed these concerns, the people and the we don't need a process for change camp didn't budge. And here's why. Their problem actually had nothing to do with the 12-step process at all. Their problem was that none of them believed they needed a change to begin with. Never mind the fact that all of their relationships were suffering and the people that they loved began to put up boundaries in their life to protect them from their toxic behavior. They were simply unwilling to look in the mirror and admit that they were powerless over their sin and the defects that came with it. The church, in particularly in America, and I can't speak to a global perspective, I don't have as much experience, although my assumption is that it's, it's different given the conversations I've had with, with missionaries. The church in America, at least, has increasingly made it easier for Christians to just pray more and study more and serve more and pretend like this is just who you are as a flawed Christian and one day Jesus is gonna fix it but until then people just need to give you grace and you just need to settle with the way things are right now. But then you get to verse three and John says this, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Connect with what he just said there. Everyone who hopes in this second coming, this perfect coming where we shall be like him, this day where God gives us all knowledge and and transforms us and we become like Christ. Everyone who hopes in that and that glorious future, which all Christians, by the way, should hope for that future, Everyone who hopes in that thus should purify himself now, presently, as he is pure. Did John just say you are responsible for doing some things? If you thus hope in Jesus' second coming, in the meantime, presently purify yourself? I think that's what he's saying here. Let me just be candid with you, and please hear this. This is from a place of love. It really is from a place of love. In my pastoral experience, the people in the we don't need a process for change camp are very often the most in need of a process for change. And everyone in their life knows it but them. This is not a statement of judgment, it's a statement of observation. It's a statement of experience. So So here's what I'm gonna say in light of that. Do not be deceived by them. Do not be deceived by them. They need it more than anyone. But they are usually so full of pride or arrogance that they can't see it. And so they cling to control or they cling to whatever religiosity or self-justification, self-righteous behavior they can to resist purifying themselves like John says. And in the end, it often ends up costing them way more than it was necessary to begin with. They lose their marriages, they lose their relationships, they, they lose their ministries because they were unwilling to look themselves in a... 2023 mirror that's clear and see the problem looking back at them and and admit powerlessness over it. Don't be deceived by them. One more camp, we'll end here. The last one I will call the we shouldn't worry too much about sin camp. This is the group that has no problem admitting that we're all sinners. They love Romans 3.23, which I do too. I think it's a great verse. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. 
That levels the ground. Every single one of us have fallen short of God's glory. Every single one of us have to stand before God and answer for the fact that we are not perfect. This is the group that has no problem admitting we are all sinners. They just are not all that concerned about it either. These are the ones who will get upset when we call them or others to repentance when they have sinned. They'll say, why are you judging me? You know, why, who are you to confront me about my sin? You're just as guilty. This past weekend, we watched a uh, stand-up routine from a guy that um, had just recently over the last few years come out of rehab and had intervention and had various um, problems in his life, I'll put it that way. And at one point, he was talking about this intervention that took place from all of his friends where they sort of blindsided him with this, with this sit down, you're going to rehab talk. And, um, and, he, and he said in the talk, he, he said at one point, he, he looked at them and he said, how about this? I'll stop doing cocaine when you stop drinking and smoking weed. He's saying this to the people who are doing the intervention. Now, I doubt, for what it's worth, he had honest intentions about this proposition. Uh, Perhaps his friends should also stop doing those things. But I think the statement really captures the sentiment of so many people in this camp, that we don't need to take sin too seriously camp. These folks will say, yeah, I know I sin, but who are you to call me out on it? Because you're just as guilty of your own stuff. And of course, if you take this line of reasoning to its logical end, what you end up coming away with is, well, we shouldn't worry about sin at all. We shouldn't even talk about it. We should just sort of accept it and move on. And of course, if you're somebody in the church who does worry about it and does hold people accountable for it, you get labeled as legalistic or judgmental by this camp. Because who are you? I mean, you need to get the plank out of your own eye before you look at the little gnat in my own, the little speck in my own. But what does John say? Look at verses four through six. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, let's just be honest about this. Verse six is a little worrisome, isn't it? Makes us a little uncomfortable. John literally just said, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. So should we just check out early, go to brunch, beat the Methodists? No, I don't, I don't, think, that's, I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think the key word here is in verse five. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning is what he says. In other words, there's an, it's, it's a habitual sin, a, an ongoing commitment to sin. In fact, every time he mentions sin here in these 10 verses, it's in the present tense, which implies an ongoing, unending practice. In other words, John is saying that when you entered a new relationship with Jesus, you also entered a new relationship with sin. Two things change, the way you relate to God and the way you relate to the rest of the world. Sin should no longer feel the same as a Christian as it did when you were not a Christian because not only is your conscience renewed when you come to faith, but when you believe the gospel and were born again, you receive the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And every time you sin after that point, you grieve the spirit who indwells within you. Ephesians chapter four, verse 30, Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Listen, there are standards in the Bible that we are called to as believers in Christ. First Peter chapter one, verse 16, Peter quotes our favorite devotional book, Leviticus, Leviticus 19 two, where God says, be holy as I am holy. 
You be holy as I, God, am holy. God calls us then to holiness. So that means then when we sin, when we fall short of God's standards, we are to rebuke one another and correct one another. Again, in love and in kindness and in gentleness and in the fruit of the Spirit, all those things, we relate to one another with the fruit of the Spirit as we do to those in the world around us as well. But again, in truth, which is that you've missed the mark and you need to repent. We must reject the mindset that says, don't worry about sin, don't make too big of a deal of it. The problem with this mindset is that the Lord has made a big deal of it. The Lord crucified his own son in order to deal with it. That's what John is getting at in verse five. You know that he appeared in order to what? To take away sins. That's how big of a deal it was. Let me give you a truth. Whenever you minimize sin, you minimize the death of Jesus Christ. Whenever you minimize your sin, what you're doing is you're saying, yeah, it's not that big of a deal and and neither is the payment for it, really. In fact, maybe it was overpayment. Maybe God didn't even need to send Jesus to die for my sin. That's how little of a deal this is. I'm a pretty good guy. Do not be deceived. People of God, do not be deceived into thinking that you need to be more friendly with the world around you. Friendship with the world is hostility with God. You need to... You need to be a powerful witness for the gospel, led by the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, but standing upon truth, that will not make you friends with the world. Do not be deceived into thinking you need to be friends with the world. Do not be deceived into thinking that you don't need to actively be purifying yourself as you await his return. God's people are called to purify themselves. To, in other words, evaluate our behaviors and our actions and our words in light of the standard to which we are called. And that means also do not be deceived into thinking that there is no standard, that sin is not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. And for those of you this morning who have never trusted Jesus as your savior, do not be deceived into thinking that now is not the best time to do so. You may not have tomorrow. There's no guarantee for tomorrow. There's no guarantee, let's just be honest, for today, for this afternoon. Life is fleeting. The Bible says that life is like a mist. You're here in the morning, you're gone by the end of the morning. Don't be deceived into thinking that one day I'm gonna kind of start getting things right, but until then, I'm just not real ready to make the full commitment. Let's be honest, you're not gonna get any better than you are right now. And the great news is Jesus will take you just as you are. Broken in all, sinful in all, all the secrets, all the bad things you've done, maybe even this morning, Jesus sees it all, doesn't matter. Because God has dealt seriously with sin, so much so that he crucified his son so that you might have an opportunity for life. And so I'm pleading with you this morning. If you have never believed the gospel, believe today. Hebrews says, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. The time is now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, such a, a challenging word and a, and, a, and a stern reminder of the ways in which your people might be deceived. The great thing about the scripture is that when we come back to it, we're always brought back into alignment with your standards. The word of God pierces us because it's living and active. 
And so I pray that the Holy Spirit this morning that you would make all the necessary applications in the hearts of your people here. And, and for those, God, who have never believed, who have never bowed in humble submission before Jesus and confessed that he is Lord, believed in their hearts, that you would lead them to do so this morning, that today would be the day, that today, that now would be the moment that they make the decision that, yeah, I am powerless over my sin. I, I, things aren't getting better. Things haven't gotten better in a long time. They never will get better. But with Christ, we have a future. We have forgiveness. We have freedom. So would you lead those here this morning into repentance and into salvation? And that at this moment, they would be transferred from that domain of darkness that we talked about and into the kingdom of your beloved son. That we would receive them in, rejoicing. How we love you, how we honor you, and we thank you for the gospel. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Hey, so two things. One, newcomer's lunch, B101, right after church. Just a little reminder. Uh, next week, I want to make you aware of this. We will continue in 1 John, uh, starting in verse 11. So we're going to go all the way through the book of 1 John. We are actually starting a new series. Um, verse 11 is where the love theme picks up. So I mentioned this 12 weeks ago when we started the series that uh, the first half of 1 John is all about how God is light and we should walk in the light because God is light. Starting in verse 11, we learn that we should walk in love because God is love. And so we're gonna continue through this series. We're not gonna skip a beat with regard to the book, um, but we are going to have a new overarching sermon series with a new bumper. That way you don't hear the Home Depot bumper for like 24 weeks in a row, right? Just a way to kind of change it up. Still the same book, the Bible. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, it is called, by the way, This Is Love. And uh, really excited about that. And then, of course, last but not least, youth parent meeting next Sunday. Just another reminder for you as well. God bless you. See you next time.